Now, if you will, please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to the 49th chapter, Genesis 49, and we will focus this morning on this Messianic prophecy, verse 10. I touched on this at Christmas Eve this last year and was determined to preach something that was more, well, lengthier and uh, involved more detail. We will be looking at four Old Testament prophecies of the birth of Christ over these four Sundays in December, Lord willing. Before reading, let us go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess before Thee that we often do not retain within our hearts this biblical revelation of who Thou art. We sometimes have very low views of Thee and high views of ourselves. We are full of self and sin by nature. It is only the regenerating work of the Spirit of God that can cause us to see our great need of this Redeemer who is prophesied in this passage today. May some who are lost and undone come to know that they need this Redeemer. We ask that the people of God will grow in their understanding of the Word of God this morning, but also, Father, that they will grow, each of us, in humility, bowing the heart before the sacred one God in three persons, recognizing our dependence and being grateful that we were not left in our awful sins, but have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Genesis chapter 49, we will be looking at verse 10, but we will pick it up actually in verse 8. Well, perhaps verse 1. See, Jacob is blessing his sons in this passage, and verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Also a possible translation, in the last days. And then he begins his, his blessings upon his son. We come, sons, we come to Judah in verse 8, and we begin reading there the word of the Lord. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now look at verse 10 once more. This is the text this morning. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But before you sit down, listen to it in the authorized version. And if you have a New American Standard, some other versions they will be, 
uh, just like this. Uh, notice the difference in wording. This is verse 10 in another translation. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, after the fall of mankind into sin in Adam, God began to reveal in a progressive way his intention to bring the Lord Jesus into the world to redeem us from our sins. And God's revelation was by means of theophany and prophecy and miracles. In other words, his person, his speech, and his deeds. Jesus coming into the world was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. The Lord gradually and progressively revealed that the Savior of sinners would come to redeem us from our sins. And starting in Genesis 3.15, soon after the fall of mankind in Adam, these prophecies began. Over these four Sundays, we will be looking at several of them. Already then, before coming to Genesis 49, in Genesis 3.15, we have the promise that the Messiah would come, who would be a man and born of the seed of a woman. In Genesis 9.27, that God will dwell in the tents of Shem. In Genesis 12 through 17, that the Messiah would come through Abraham's line. In Genesis 17.9, that the Messiah would come through Isaac. And in Genesis 26, 3 and 4, that the Messiah will come through Jacob. And now, in Genesis 49, verse 10, the promise, the prophecy that the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. And had we time to open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, we would see how this narrowing process leads us to see that the Messiah would not only be through the line of Judah, but through the line of David the king. So we come to this text, admittedly a very difficult text. And the first thing that we see is birthright and blessing. Jacob is blessing his children from his deathbed, which was not unusual for the patriarchs to do. It was the custom. Birthright and blessing usually are given at the same time to the same individual, but here things will be different. God's plan is being unfolded, and so he must give a birthright that is an inheritance, and so he gives it to Joseph, that is to say, through a double portion to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. But he also must give a blessing, that is to say, who among his sons is now going to provide the leadership that Jacob had provided? Who will take the scepter from Jacob among his sons and rule and reign? Well, not Reuben, the firstborn, one might have expected, not Simeon nor Levi, but Judah. And let me stress that Judah, this choice of Judah is God's choice, and it is altogether by the grace of God. In Genesis chapter 38, he had utterly disgraced himself. 
He had sinned many times, but the grace of God worked in his life, and there indications of repentance and faith toward Christ who would be coming. By the grace of God, Judah will be praised. And the succession of kings will come through Judah. Judah is the one who takes the scepter. And through his son Perez, Judah becomes the ancestor of David, and therefore the ancestor of the Messiah, the promised king. Now kings hold scepters, and the idea comes from shepherding because ancient kings were to be the shepherds of their people. But also lawgivers held scepters, and there's a possibility of the pointing of the close relationship with Levi in this passage because of that as well. So in chapter 49, verse 10, his blessing is prophetic of the Messiah, possibly verse 1 being translated, the last days, has reference to the messianic days to which this prophecy points. God is at work and he is unfolding progressively his promise that the coming Redeemer, through Jacob's blessing in the text, would be in the line of Judah. And Judah is here designated as the tribe of rule. The principle of kingship will continue until the one came to whom that rule, that kingship, ultimately belonged. And God unfolds this truth again in 1 Samuel 7 after about a thousand years that David is the king of the tribe of Judah who is the one through whom the Messiah will come. Now, every Christmas, people of God, we see various texts, and we are led to stress divine predestination, the divine purpose, the divine plan, and His providence, His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. You see, the triune God is a personal God who has a personal plan and who has a divine will, and His plan is enacted through history, and it must come to fruition. And that is happening here, and it is still happening. God has a perfect plan, and that plan is unfolding. And our great encouragement is that in the midst of what appears to us to be the chaos of this fallen world, the Lord is working His purpose out, and even the wrath of men shall praise Him. Nothing can thwart God's eternal plan. Nothing can thwart God's eternal purpose. Nothing can keep the king from coming to rule and to reign. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Now, the second thing we see is the prophecy. The prophecy. Verse 10, Jacob has been blessing his sons and He has singled out Judah as the one through whom the Messiah will come. And we read in verse 10, the ESV here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so he speaks of this scepter that shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And scepter represents kingship. It represents rule. It represents reign. And Judah will be the ruling tribe until, it says, until. 
And that is a very important word, until something is going to take place, something is going to happen in history, in God's plan. When? Well, it says here in the ESV, until tribute comes to him. Literally translated, it says, until Shiloh, until Shiloh come. When Shiloh comes, at a point in history determined by the Lord himself, a ruler will come through the tribe of Judah. And that is why in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the House of Judah. The Hebrew word, Shiloh, Shiloh, literally the word that is found. This is the, the, these are the words that ESV translates until tribute comes to him, and it's a very debated passage. It's literally the word Shiloh. This is God's plan. This is God's promise. When we read this, your heart should thrill. God is at work. God is bringing his son into the world. God is going to bring this baby Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to redeem us from our sins. God said it. It must be. His word always is fulfilled. And that is what the God of gods is like. That is who he is. He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts of whom Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. What an encouragement for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to know that this is the God of the Bible. So the third thing, that we must understand as we look at this very difficult passage is what does Shiloh mean? Because literally that's the word. Again, translated in the ESV until tribute comes to him. And many attempts have been made to identify the meaning of this word Shiloh. And without spending time on them all, because I don't think that would be helpful, here's what I think, and I'm not alone. Many Old Testament scholars have concluded that Shiloh, translated in the ESV until tribute comes, means to whom it belongs. So, the ruler's staff will not depart between his feet until the one to whom it belongs comes. Shiloh. Many Old Testament scholars would tell you the in Shiloh is a shortened form of the Hebrew particle asher. You see it often in the Hebrew Old Testament. And this particle is a shortened form of the relative pronoun. The L sound in Shiloh is the typical uh, Islamid, the, the, the letter that is the typical preposition, meaning two or four. And the O at the end is the personal pronoun meaning, meaning him. So these three morphemes, distinct morphemes together, would be translated, which is to him or to whom it belongs. In other words, he is the rightful king. He is the one to whom it belongs. Well, what belongs? What will belong to the one to come, to the one prophesied? And the answer is kingship, a scepter, 
by which he will rule and reign. Now, interestingly and importantly, there are other Old Testament passages that reference Genesis 49.10. And one of those passages is in that, again, very wonderful Old Testament prophecy of Christ in Numbers chapter 24, in which Balaam, despite himself, must prophesy, and this is what he prophesied of the coming Messiah. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. And so already in the book of Numbers, a reference to this passage in which there is one coming who will rule and sway his scepter, and he shall have dominion. But perhaps more plain, well actually very much more clear, is Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, which is a direct, almost a direct quote of this section of Scripture. It clearly picks up on the theme of Genesis 49, 10, and actually helps us to translate this word Shiloh. Here the Lord announces that he will judge Judah, that he will, quote, remove the turban and take off the crown. And then in Ezekiel 21, 27, it says, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. The authorized version translates this splendidly. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. It is a direct quote, virtually, of this passage that we are preaching this morning, showing the connection with Genesis 49.10, the one whose right it is, the one whose right it is to take the scepter, to rule, to reign, to be king, or to whom it belongs, because it belongs to no other but to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Shiloh theology is reflected here in Ezekiel. Michael Barrett says, history certainly bears witness to the truth of Ezekiel's prophecy. The Babylonian judgment removed Israel's king and the throne was vacant until Christ came, the rightful king who will reign forever. Now this is similar to other issues in Messianic prophecy. You have the branch theology in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. The Old Testament teaches of this new shoot of life that comes out of the tree that has been cut down. When it seems that there is no life, up comes the branch. New life. As we sing, it came a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. So here, when it seems the kingship is destroyed... Here comes the king born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is the restoration of the fall intent of David, of which we read in Amos chapter 9. If you're new to these things, these references are all over the Old Testament. Ezekiel is saying, to use the words of that great Old Testament scholar E.W. Hensingberg, 
Nowhere is there rest, nowhere security. All things are in a state of flux till the coming of the great restorer and prince of peace. There, therefore, is only one who has a right to rule and a right to reign, to whom dominion belongs, to whom lordship belongs, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Judah and David's line. He sways the scepter that shall not depart from Judah. And so, children, as you look toward Christmas, and you are learning so much about who Jesus is and about the babe in Bethlehem, this little baby born in Bethlehem of Judea was born a king, children. King of kings, Lord of lords. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so the import of the ancient prophecy is, Judah will not cease to govern until Shiloh comes, or at least the principle of kingship continues until the coming king. Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. What belongs to him is the messianic kingdom of God. So the question is, does he rule in your heart? Does he rule in your life? He rules over your heart. He rules over your life. He rules. He rules and he reigns, whether you know it or not, whether you can see it or not. He rules over all. Have you received this king into your heart? Does he rule in your heart and in your life? This is his rightful place. Undoubtedly, there's some here today. Surely, in a group like this, there are some who are rebelling against his rule, rebelling against his reign. Someone here who is bringing disorder and chaos to others around you because there's no peace in your heart with God. Maybe your mind is filled with a knowledge of Scripture. Maybe you can recite the catechism. Maybe you know a lot of theology. That's good, but it doesn't save you from your sins. Do you trust the Christ of the Bible, the Christ who is spoken of in the catechism, the Christ of all true theology, do you know him? Does he rule? Does he reign in your heart and in your life? Because it is the one who has the right to sway the scepter in your life. And if you do not know the Lord, if you do not trust him now, let me tell you, you will know who rules and reigns when you die, the moment you die. And one day, when Christ comes again and raises the just and the unjust, body and soul will know who rules and reigns on that great day of days when he judges the living and the dead. You had better get it right now. You had better submit to his scepter now. You had better trust in him now. You had better believe in him now. That's the call of the gospel. Believe and repent. Believe and trust and the Son of God, the King of kings, who sways the scepter. But now let's look fourthly at the glory of the coming King. We need to deal with two things here. The scepter and the gathering or obedience of the peoples. Look at the passage again. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, of course, we've said already that the scepter represents rule and reign. It represents power, authority, royalty, glory. The scepter is wielded by a king. It's representative of his rule. To him also shall the obedience of the peoples be. The one who wields the scepter, not only of Judah, not only over Israel, not only over the Old Testament saints, not only over his church, but over every single individual, over all peoples everywhere, over Hamas, over Israel, over Iran, over North Korea and China, over Great Britain and over Europe and over the United States of America, over all peoples, he rules and reigns. How? Well, he rules with a scepter. He rules with a shepherd's staff for his people. He rules with that scepter as a rod of iron for those who reject his name and his rule. And this is the primary purpose for which we read Philippians chapter 2 this morning. This beautiful passage that speaks of the humility that should belong to every Christian after the pattern of our Savior who came into this world and, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, but also who will come again. And before Him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That also will be a fulfillment of Genesis 49, verse 10. This is the primary point of Psalm chapter 2. The one to whom the Messiah, the Messianic kingdom belongs, will crush all of the enemies of God, and his son will inherit the nations. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Do you have such a global view of the mediatorial reign of Christ who holds the scepter? He rules and reigns, and the day will come when he returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And he will use his scepter as a rod of iron in judgment. But also, he also takes this scepter and sways it in his sovereign might and authority and love and mercy in the hearts of all of his people whom he has saved from sin. Every sinner for whom he died will be saved. The scepter he sways is that of grace in the hand of our blessed shepherd king. And so he sways that scepter in judgment. He sways the scepter in grace. Augustus Toplady, the author of that great hymn, Rock of Ages, put it this way, the dignity of his divine person, the infinite value of his obedience and sacrifice together with the justice of his almighty Father to whom the inestimable price was paid 
render it impossible for any single soul that any single soul should perish for whom such a redeemer died. It is neither at the option nor in the power of thy corrupt free will to render his mediation effectual or ineffectual. All is firmly fixed by the unalterable will, the immovable decree, and the everlasting covenant of the uncreated three. Christ did not come into the world at haphazard, nor live and die for a maybe. He was born and shed his blood for a peculiar people whom his own sanctifying grace was to make zealous for good works, and that he might gather together into one glorified company all the children of God that were scattered abroad. John 11:52. As surely as Christ was born for them at Bethlehem, so surely shall he be formed in them their hope of glory by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All will be brought to submission. I was talking with Julia Kennedy recently about the whole situation in Washington, and I made the comment, I sound like a worried man. I'm concerned. That, she said, is where you ought to be. Essentially repeating what I'm preaching to you this morning, we know who rules. We know who reigns. Do you find that your heart sometimes just flags? There is such fatigue. Look at the world in which we live. Look at the sin of man. Do you think that God is not sovereign over these things? Do you understand what he's doing? You can understand that he's going to glorify himself in the salvation of his people and even in the damnation of the reprobates. He does have a perfect plan. It is working out. It is unfolding. And it all has to do with the one who has the right to hold the scepter and sway it over this world. That should be your encouragement. All will be brought to submission. All beings will bow beneath his scepter, demonic and human, because he is the Lord whose right it is to reign. I have six applications for you. I'll bring three of them. An unusual text? Yes. It's one of the most obscure prophecies of the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, but it's pivotal. An essential strand in the tapestry of redemptive history. First application, providence. Providence. Surely at Christmas what is highlighted is that God gives his reliable world word In his providence, the Lord fulfills his purpose and plan and brings to fruition what he has promised in his word. We pass like Jacob passed, unless Jesus comes first. But God's purpose goes on. His promise will never fail. Let our hearts be encouraged. Even now, he is gathering the Gentiles to himself. I had a minister just yesterday tell me from Great Britain, 
how many Muslims they're seeing come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, verse 5, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee. Even now, he is swaying his scepter, and he is gathering to himself those for whom he gave his life. Be encouraged to know that though we cannot see, though we do not understand, there is such wrong in the world. What is happening? He holds the scepter. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And indeed, that is true. Second thing, since he holds the scepter, since the scepter will not depart from his feet until Shiloh come, and Shiloh is the one to whom it belongs, he has the right to take that scepter and rule and reign, then acknowledge the scepter. Now, right now I'm speaking to believers in the Lord Jesus. Do we acknowledge his scepter in our lives? Do we acknowledge his scepter in times of temptation? Are you, am I, acknowledging his scepter in times of stress? Do we acknowledge his scepter in times of distress? Do we acknowledge his scepter in times of distraction? Do we acknowledge his scepter in times of confusion? Do we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, his rule, his reign, his scepter in our lives? Young people, do you acknowledge his scepter? Why? Because it is he whose right it is. He has the right to rule and reign in your heart and in mine, your life and in mine. And because his shepherding and rule is for your good, and he is the Lord of grace, then let us kiss the scepter. Kiss the son, lest ye perish in the way. Kiss his scepter. And if you are here and you're not a believer in Christ, have you acknowledged at this moment that scepter? Have you right now believed in Christ Jesus and repented of your sins? Have you laid down or will you now lay down the weapons of your warfare against the one whose right it is to sway the scepter over your heart and over your life? What are you holding on to? What demonic things do you need to reject? What unholy sins do you need to repent of? Come to Him, trust Him, kneel before Him in your heart, believe in Him that His scepter may not ruin you in judgment, but touch you in grace. Spurgeon somewhere said, I've often pictured to myself our great commander, the only king by divine right, coming back to this our earth and gathering up the scepters of the kings and sheaves and putting them on one side and collecting their crowns, for he alone shall reign king of kings and lord of lords. That's a picture, isn't it? Jesus coming again, the one who sways the scepter and you have been rulers in all of these many ages and thousands of years. 
I collect from you your measly little scepters. And then you've had crowns on your head. I collect all of your crowns and I put them over here. They're nothing. I'm the one who rules. I'm the one who reigns. Cast your crowns before my feet. And I'll give you one other application. And it's summarized by the word expectancy. The Jews expected the Messiah. There was a remnant, a believing remnant of the true people of God that expected and waited for the Messiah to come. And what do you know? He came because God said he would. And they simply believed what God said in his word. And we who have believed in the one who came also live in the expectancy of his return. And we should live in that expectancy just as those who awaited his first arrival lived in believing expectancy, trusting the word of the Lord. Children, I mean our little children here today, as you have expectancy about Christmas morning, and already some excitement building in your heart. You might say, well, pastor, don't encourage more of that, but it's there, isn't it? So let's just deal with what's there as you have expectancy about Christmas morning. So as you mature in Christ, we must also have expectancy every day about a greater day than our Christmas celebrations when the Christ of Christmas who came to this world and died for our sins and rose again and ascended on high, will come again, return from heaven. Shiloh, the one whose right it is to come and rule and reign. I think only one time I probably have mentioned the conversion story of Adolf Saffer. But he's a man that I greatly admire from the 19th century. He was a Hungarian Jew who came to Christ and became a minister in the Free Church of Scotland. But growing up in Budapest, he knew nothing at all about the incarnation of our Lord. Children, imagine that. He knew nothing about the baby Jesus. He knew nothing at all about God coming in the flesh. He knew none of the hymns that you know. He didn't sing joy to the world. He didn't know anything about what the the Bible really taught about the coming Messiah, even though he was in the synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath. Children, he knew nothing about the baby, about Christmas morning, about God coming into this world to be our Redeemer. He knew nothing, nothing at all. And then he wrote in one of his lectures in later life about how he came to know the Lord. And this is what this converted Jew had to say. I'll just give you part of it. He says, perhaps none of you know from experience what it is to live without the knowledge of the incarnation, about the birth of Christ, God coming into the world, what it is to endeavor to realize the incomprehensible infinite God without the light and comfort of the, of the mediator, And how joyous and self-evidencing is the peaceful brightness when Jesus is revealed as the Son of God declaring the Father. Uh, Many of you don't know anything about, never having heard about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, but he had never heard 
those things. And he said he went to the synagogue faithfully, but it left his mind in darkness and his heart chilly and desolate. And then he says this, One day I was looking at some books, and the title of one arrested my eye. It was the Menschen Verdung Gottes, God Becoming Man. The book title, God Becoming Man. The thought went through my mind like a flash of lightning. It thrilled my soul with the most joyous solemnity. Oh, I said, this would be the most beautiful thing if God were to become man and visit us. Not many years after, I heard about Jesus. And for the first time, children, he read the Gospels. I felt here the same presence, the same loving, condescending, redeeming, and sanctifying God that appeared unto the fathers. He means to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I felt that there was Jehovah, that all darkness had disappeared, and that the grand but inconceivable glory here shone upon us in the perfect, peaceful, and holy countenance of the man, Christ Jesus. Penial, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. It is the mystery of godliness. And so this man, who didn't have your privileges, didn't know anything about Jesus coming into the world, knew nothing about the incarnation of our Lord, would go to the synagogue and his heart was cold and chilly. He saw something of God's incomprehensibility, something of his greatness, but he didn't know how he could relate to him because he had no mediator to bring him to God. And then the Lord showed him through the Gospels, which he read for the first time. And he saw that book, and he said, it would be the most beautiful thing if God were to come down and visit us. Well, don't you agree? It would be the most beautiful thing if the infinite transcendent God would come down and visit us. Well, he has. He did. And he will. The first time he came in utter humiliation. The second time, he will come in exalted glory, wielding his scepter as King of kings and Lord of lords. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.